is the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. Factory grown, brewed, put together, created milk. Would you drink it? It could be the next big thing in dairy coming to you. It's not from a farm. It's not from an animal. It's not from a nut. It's not from a bean. It's not from an oat. It's created in a factory. A company says they can do it. They've got big investment, not only from the Victorian government, but also from a major name in the dairy industry. One of the last big cooperatives in Australian dairy is investing in this technology for well, non-cow-produced dairy. We're going to hear all about that shortly on the program. You can tell me if you're going to drink it. Also today on the Country Hour, another apple grower exits the industry in what was once heartland for Australian and Victorian apple growing. And tractor sales are in decline. Tractor sales going with the weather, it seems. Huge years in La Nina, bust years in El Nino. Is that what's going on here? We'll go through all of that and more. I hope you can join us right now. Let's get some rural news with Emma Field. Good afternoon, Emma. G'day, Warwick. Despite a ban on native timber harvesting in Victoria and Western Australia from early next year and an increase in the price of timber, the amount of plantation timber in Australia continues to decline. A report from government commodity forecaster ABES shows the amount of timber in plantations has been dropping for around a decade and the trend is continuing. Acting CEO of the Australian Forest Products Association, Natasha Sinkman, says it's a tough read for the industry. So it's a worrying report in the sense that it's still showing a downward trajectory in our plantation estate. It's sitting at around 1.7 million hectares. But what we've seen is a decline of around 28,000 hectares in the year uh, 21-22. But more concerning is since the year 2014, we've seen a really uh, a significant decline in, in the plantation estate and more will need to be done to actually increase those numbers and get more trees into the ground. And the share price of rural services company Elders has more than halved in 12 months. Six months ago, shares traded at around $14, but they've dropped to around the mid-$5 mark. This follows the company lowering its full year's earnings forecast in August. Jim Ferrier, head of research with Wilson's Advisory, says the big reason for the share price drop is the weather forecast. Our take on that move is really a case of investors pricing in the impact of issues such as lower livestock prices, and a change in seasonal conditions with the onset of an El Nino weather pattern. Look, there's certainly other factors that are at play within business. We had an anticipated change in management in elders uh, until uh, the middle of this year with Mark Allison originally planning to retire from the business. Uh, He's decided to stay on, so that's one factor that has been on the minds of investors. And ahead of grain harvest, farmers are being warned of an increase in fuel thefts. In South Australia, police are calling for greater vigilance on farms over the harvest period. Superintendent Campbell Hill, the officer in charge of the Limestone Coast area, says fuel tanks and unlocked sheds are easy targets when attention is focused on getting crops off as quickly as possible. Quite often we are talking people that are uh, losing fuel or diesel in particular into the hundreds of litres, if not to a 1,000 litres or more, at a single time. 
people again would not be surprised to know that there are people that know farming, there are people that know how the industry works. It's generally going to be committed by people who feel safe enough and, and know the area and, and understand where there is work being done out harvesting, as an example, that there's likely to be other areas that aren't necessarily occupied at the time. And we appreciate that there is time pressures and we know that it's not as simple as being able to lock every single gate. We know that these things throughout the course of a day can add a lot of time to the work day. But the time that it takes to make sure that machinery is locked and that sheds are locked while people are out harvesting, that can mitigate what can be very, very quickly into the tens of thousands of dollars of property and plant that gets stolen or damaged. Over the ditch to New Zealand now, where large dairy company Fonterra has lifted the price it's paying farmers this season. It's increased its farm gate milk price range by 50 cents per kilogram for milk solids to be $6.50 to $8 in New Zealand dollar terms, with a midpoint of $7.25, which converts to be $6.81 in Australian dollars. And bear in mind, Australian dairy farmers are being paid $9.20 per kilogram of milk solids by Fonterra. The company says better than expected exports into key markets driven by the El Nino weather pattern forecast has helped boost prices to New Zealand farmers. Back to Australia now, where the number of cattle being rejected by live exporters up north is increasing as several live export ships line up to take cattle to Indonesia this month. For almost three months now, federal government vets have been rejecting cattle with any form of skin blemish, which is ruling out massive amounts of top-end cattle. The Federal Department of Agriculture says its vets are doing this to ensure cattle exports meet requirements of the Indonesian Quarantine Authority. Northern Territory cattle producer and former, former Cattle Council of Australia President Marcus Rathsman is getting ready to sell cattle in coming weeks and says the requirement is costly to the industry. There's been, I think, runs of up to 40% where there's been rejections. And unfortunately, the wording is is also terrible. Um, The animals are said to have lesions, but that's certainly not the case. And the dictionary meaning of a lesion is a structural change resulting from injury or disease. And the animals certainly don't have disease and they certainly don't have injuries. So it's clearly not the right word for anyone to be using for these cattle. Um, So... These animals are being rejected basically because they've got skin blemishes. And that wraps up Rural News. Thanks very much for that, Emma Field, there with Rural News for you today. Asking you today if you're ready to drink lab-grown milk or precision fermented milk or milk produced in a factory. You can call it what you will. I want to know how you feel about that getting how you feel about that product coming to a shelf near you. Also how you feel about the dairy industry. And the Victorian government investing in this product, putting up big dollars too. Already on the text line, Stephen and Kerwa says, Hi Warwick, plastic milk to add to the list of foods that are not what they pretend to be. Maybe a prefix like synth could be adopted, e.g. synth meat, synth milk, says Stephen in Kerwa. And uh, was, I can hear the ad campaign now, lab-grown milk for those who don't like nipples, says Kevin in Maui. Well, that hasn't been used for nut milk yet, has it, uh, Kevin? But I can take your joke. Thank you for that. Precision fermentation. It's a term that's pretty new to me, but it's been widely used for more than 20 years to produce rennet for making cheese. And now an Australian company, Eden Brew, in partnership with New South Wales-based dairy cooperative Norco, 
has received a $25 million cash injection to make lab-brewed milk, including $6 million from the Victorian government. So if this product is created, would you drink it? You can let us know. Eden Brew co-founder and CEO Jim Fader is planning to lodge an application with regulators to approve the product for human consumption next year. So Eden Brew uh, is a business using precision fermentation to brew casein proteins. Uh, and then we are able to encourage those casein proteins to form the casein micelle, much like the casein micelle is formed inside the cow. We're looking to very closely emulate the dairy sensory experience and the nutritional profile of dairy milk. Why are you looking to emulate something that is produced by cows the world over already? Because uh, we're going to need a lot more of it. As economies get more prosperous uh, and people earn more money, they make different choices. And so that is going to drive, whether it's beef, lamb, chicken, pork, dairy, up to a doubling of demand in protein over the next 30 years. So it's, it's less about replacing what's already here and it's more about augmenting supply because we've got to make a lot more food really quickly. The milk pool in Australia has been dropping year on year, I think, over the past decade. Could what you're producing perhaps plug some of that gap? Uh, 100%. I mean, we're really proud to be co-founded by Norco. And our business model is to brew the proteins centrally at scale because they're quite expensive. So that's to get to least cost, turn it into a powder. We then send those powders up to Norco who rehydrate them, uh, blend with other ingredients. And then at that point, really treat it as if it was raw milk from a dairy farm. So it goes down their existing milk production line uh, into you know, through the bottling machines out onto the trucks. Uh, and, and what is happening in terms of business development? with Eden Brew? Uh, so we're relatively early. We're um, at, the, at the stage of making prototype products and scaling the science. So we can make the product in uh, like a 10-litre fermenter, but we need to brew the proteins in a 100,000-litre fermenter to get the costs down to um, close to what someone would be willing to pay. Um, so that's about another 12 months to, to get that process done. And the uh, capital raise of $25 million we announced is really about unlocking um, all of that activity. In parallel, we're doing a lot of work around what our go-to-market strategy is, So, and we also need to put a Fizance application in, which is about 12 months to gain approval. Where did that $25 million capital investment come from? A raft of different investors. Uh, so Main Sequence Ventures, who is our um, incumbent main shareholder, led this investment. But then uh, we were very proud to also achieve a large investment from Breakthrough Victoria. So they'll put in up, up to $6 million um, in this round. Um, and then we've got um, investment from venture capitalists in America, uh, from uh, large businesses in Europe, from high net worth individuals and uh, private equity uh, in Asia and Australia. And then uh, to cap it off, we've also um, got some money from uh, some investment from high profile uh, celebrities in the music industry in Australia. What's the international interest in developing the process here in Australia? So I think that uh, it's, it is a bit unusual to get direct investment uh, into an Australian business, particularly from America. Normally that investment is uh, more concerned with proximity to business development in America. And I think it talks uh, greatly to the strides that the Australian ecosystem is making, the profile that we've got and the, uh, the science and the R&D standards that we are achieving. 
there's a great need for this technology to hit the market and I think that um, Eden Brew has been able to demonstrate really clearly that we have a, uh, a point of difference around our technology and a very clear strategy and that's resonated. What does milk produced via precision fermentation taste like? So we believe that our final products will be so close that it'll be very difficult to discern any difference. Uh, the prototypes we've made right now are also very, very close. You take the proteins, you form the micelle, um, you add sugar instead of lactose, so it's a, it's a lactose-free product, and we use a coconut base to uh, make a, a fat complex uh, that goes in, and then the rest really is about, um, is, is about flavour, and uh, we can get a very close flavour match. So um, the prototypes we've made, um, we used uh, with a lot of our investor meetings to demonstrate our ability to get a very strong dairy sensory experience, um, and we're really proud of that. What kind of scale will you be able to produce that and what kind of land footprint um, will that require? I think we're going to need um, significant scale over a long period of time. We are working with a business called Cauldron, um, also based in Australia. We're very lucky to have a very world-class precision fermentation business in our backyard here. Uh, And so we're working closely with them on what our scale-up looks like and then the size of uh, the production plants that we would build into the future. And we would expect to build a number of, of them with cauldron uh, so again the, the the land footprint that those designs require I'm unclear on it will be a lower land footprint than a plant-based milk or a dairy-based milk because we're not necessarily growing um, the, the same sort of crop to feed into the process so we see it as being uh, less onerous on land but um, we're not sure how much and what about um, energy and water inputs? Dairy can be quite intensive in terms of energy use and water use. Uh, I think energy could be as much as 50% of the cost of running the fermentation plant. Uh, so renewable energy is really important. Utility management and, um, and managing waste is really important, uh, like all manufacturing processes. Uh, in terms of water, we, we will use a fraction of the water that is um, required within the dairy industry and within um, plant-based milks. Um, and uh, we at this point in time forecast to be under 10 litres of water for one litre of milk produced. And how does that compare with dairy? So dairy is around about 1,000 litres um, and almond milk for example is around about 6,000 litres per one one litre made. Do you expect any pushback from consumers who might be a bit sceptical about the technological processes? I think because it's new, um, we have a job to do to explain exactly how the product is made and why it is safe. Uh, a lot of this technology is already consumed on mass scale, whether it's rennet in cheese or whether it's insulin. It's a very safe and widely adopted technology, but it hasn't been uh, necessarily used at large scale in food. So we've definitely got a job to do to explain to customers what the product is, how it's made, why it's safe, uh, and how it adds value to the repertoire of choices that they've got. That is Jim Fader, the co-founder and CEO of Precision Fermentation Company, Eden Brew, speaking to Fiona Broom about that lab-grown, factory-produced milk product that they've created. He mentioned Norco is a co-founder. That's a last major cooperative, really, isn't it, in Australian dairy, north and New South Wales and southern Queensland, that uh, that company is based there. How do you feel about the dairy industry being involved in that? How do you feel about the Victorian government investing in this product as well? Because it's pretty clear from you on the text line that you're not keen on trying the product. I 
told you in the past, I'll try anything at least once. But this says, hi, Warwick, we'd have a house cow before ever drinking that. That's from Deb. Uh, I wouldn't even feed it to my dog, says Marcus the Truckee. If only the government put more money into farming and dairy might not need to go this way, says Anthony. Lab milk, no, no, no. Diane in Hamilton. Uh, $6 million from the Victorian government for phony milk when they can't seem to afford a cent to repair rural potholes. They're good was. Oh, they're good, says Jungle Jim. Actually, Jungle Jim, the Victorian government is making an announcement today around regional road funding. I hope to have the minister on tomorrow. It's looking likely the minister for roads will be on the country out tomorrow. If you have a question or if you want to be involved in that, tune in tomorrow. You can email us, countryhour at abc.net.au. We'll keep moving for the moment, though, on the country hour. Uh, Warwick Long with you today. Let's talk apples now because another apple grower at Harcourt has decided to sell up, leaving an area that was once the heartland of apple growing in Victoria with just a few commercial orchards left. Gary Pollard and his wife Heather are fourth and sixth generation apple growers from the Harcourt region and they both grew up living well on the family's orchard. The pair recently decided to sell up and move on from the industry. Nita Nahenan and had a chat with Gary about what changes he's noticed over his lifetime. Yeah, there's not many not many apple growers left now that look just in the Elphinstone region there was there was twenty three, I think. I'm going I'm going back years ago and like everyone probably had fifteen to twenty acres of orchard and raised a family on it quite, you know, very very easily. Um, they might have had a few sheep and might have had a few cattle, whatever as well. But they raised families, you know, way back Quite quite easily. Um, so things that things have changed. Yes. And going back to that, what was that like for you growing up in an apple orchard and being in a community like that? Well, I didn't know any different. I just grew up, um, went to school, and, and come home, and there'll be always something to do. Mainly, so summertime, you used to spend most of your time with a shovel over your shoulder with the old flood irrigation channel, little channels down each side of the apple tree. That's probably the biggest change that's happened. All- changing over to the to the drippers or trickle irrigation as we know it now. Uh, you've recently just sold the business. How does it feel leaving the industry and what will you miss? <laughs> Might be easier to say what I don't won't miss. <laughs> <laughs> oh well it's it's because it's been such a big part of both our lives, we are gonna miss it. We're gonna miss the we're gonna miss the contact with the people at, at the markets. We've we've developed a real real clientele and we're going to miss them and hopefully they're going to miss us too I suppose but but I mean I just turned 65 in August and, and Heather's a couple of years younger than me so it was it was getting close to our time. You, you mentioned that you've been doing farmers markets over the past 10 years prior to that you were selling uh, into the large supermarket chains why the decision to, to move to markets? We used to supply about three supermarkets in Melbourne a couple of little ones, one bigger one. Um, a couple of other fruit and veg guys are around this area. The supermarkets dictate how much they want to pay. Um, and the old story about we really want to buy your fruit, but we can get fruit cheaper through the system, but we'd really like to buy your fruit, but it's your decision, so you make the decision whether you want to supply us or not. And there was a bit of a turning point for you, wasn't there, when you decided to move away from that? Yeah, the straw that broke the camel's back was we had some excess fruit one year and we had our, we had our own transport business in, so I was able to cart it down. But we got a full semi-trail load packed up in Harcourt, so that's 20 pallets 
of um, 12 kilo boxes, send it down to the Melbourne market through an agent. We'll quote it $26 to $28 for 12 kilo boxes. When we got our returns back, it was $8.50. Cost us $7 a carton to be packed and boxed. So, you know, farmers are probably renowned for not being mathematicians, but I could I could work this one out. So that was a straw that broke the camel's back and we decided, no, there's got to be a better way. So that's the way we decided to go and it's been a huge benefit. Look, we'd be statistic before this if we didn't go down that path, I'm sure. Really busy, like every Saturday, Sunday, you start doing that as well as your week work. So you get to Friday night after you've worked all week, most people think, oh, beauty, you've got a couple of days off and can relax. Well, that's when it hypes up because, you know, you're getting up at 4.30 in the morning or something and trundling off to a market. Sure, you get home middle of the afternoon, but then you get set for the next day. And then come Sunday night, it's back to normal again on for Monday. So there's no really downtime. But in saying that, that's what we chose to do. It paid off. So that's that's what we did. And you've decided now to, to get out of the industry and you and Heather are looking to retire. What do you make of, where do you see things heading for that region in the coming years? Do you see many farming families remaining? Unfortunately, the horticulture part of it in, in Mount Harcourt's no different than any other farming. The age the age of people are getting older. No, no young ones want to take it on. It's just too much work. So the, the age of the working people is just, just getting higher and higher. So it's it's unfortunate. And if you want to get out, well, that's that's what you've got to do. Is we have we didn't have a family, so none of our nephews and that were interested. So so that was the path we went down. Isn't that a fascinating look at an industry that was once really big in an area, and now continuing to go smaller? That's Gary Pollard, an apple grower from the Harcourt region, ending that report with Eden Hennon. And now you mentioned a lot about supermarkets in that interview. We spoke to both supermarkets. We'll ask them for comments on the difficulties in terms of apple and pear prices at the moment for a lot of growers. In the response, Woolworth says it's always working to strike the balance so suppliers receive a fair price and its customers have access to high-quality and affordable produce. Coles said when it comes to the price of fruit, they can assure customers it reflects the cost of the raw ingredients we pay our suppliers. In addition, the cost of factors such as processing, transport, labour, packaging and other costs associated with getting a product ready to go on shelves for customers to enjoy. You're listening to The Country Hour. It's 27 past 12. Warwick, long with you today. Have you bought a tractor recently? Have you bought a tractor in the last couple of years? Because... The story of tractor sales almost follows the weather forecast. It's having a huge effect on sales as the market slumps now for a forecast El Nino after running hot during the La Nina years. Sales for September have fallen 23% on the year before. But the industry's not too worried yet. Gary Northover is Executive Director of the Tractory and Machinery Association of Australia. He says there are a lot of very unusual circumstances at play. Well, certainly uh, 2023 is um, a different year to the ones that we've had recently. Um, sales are returning back to what we'd more describe as more sort of normal levels. We had two years there where we had approximately 20,000 tractors sold in each year during um, during the latter part of COVID there, and uh, that's now drifting down to a number that's going to be closer to 12,000 tractors this year, so big drop. What's more normal 
I'd imagine, for your industry. Is it 12,000 figure or was it the 20,000 figure? It is. No, the 12 is definitely historically what we consider to be a pretty good year. So why were the last two years in particular so big in tractor sales? So a culmination of a couple of things. Certainly the government's uh, instant asset write-off and temporary full expensing programs were encouraging buyers to take advantage of that tax break and buy buy machinery, get the full 100% tax write-off. And generally the conditions were just so strong. I mean, we'd come off years of drought, if you recall, and um, um, the um, market boomed for um, commodities and... uh, Farmers were taking advantage of that and uh, stocking, restocking their fleets. Uh, and, yeah, it was really just a perfect perfect storm for two years there. So if we look at, say, September this year and a 23% fall in sales compared to the year prior, that maybe doesn't look as bad to someone like you because the market was so hot the two years prior to that. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think the challenge for the industry now is, as you come off two years of really busy times, um, is it going to be a soft landing? Is it going to be a hard landing? Um, we're just watching that one with interest because clearly um, it's new territory for us and, uh, um, yeah, there's a bit of adjustment required. And is it a good chance for your industry to take a breath? Really, over those two years of, of high demand, we had COVID and, and supply issues as well. People were being told you better organise your tractor almost a year in advance or, or parts, etc. were difficult to come by. Is this a, a good chance to reset for your industry? <laughs> There's no doubt about that. I think all those things you've described um, played out for a couple of years, and it's really a credit to the industry that they were able to, you know, deliver machines in the numbers that they were against that sort of um, challenge. So, um, no doubt, you know, taking a breather is nice, um, providing it results in a soft landing, as I said. Um, what we don't want to see is the industry to fall off the cliff. So that's just one thing. We're... Are you worried about further falls if this trend continues in terms of sales? Look, not worried, um, but certainly uh, you've now got not just the, um, you know, the, the sort of uh, after effects of a, a couple of boom years, the tax incentives have been removed, being compounded by the fact that we've now had a El Nino declared for Eastern Australia, which we don't know how long that's going to be, how severe that's going to be. Um, therefore, no time to be complacent about where the industry's heading terms of the difficulties the industry had in terms of getting equipment into the country for a while there there was chartered ships and all sorts of things happening for a while uh, has that eased has, has that pressure of of the supply chain eased over the last year or two well certainly the because the demand has perhaps slowed that pressure has eased there's, there's still significant lead times if you wanted to order a new tractor today you're still looking at you know 12 month lead times before you saw it but by and large i think the um demand-supply equations come into a bit more balance than it previously was. That's not to say they're not still problems with uh, particularly the RORO uh, machines that come through Wharf. If there's any hint of a quarantine issue there, then um, then there's some pretty... Uh, can be some pretty dramatic uh, hold-ups, uh, processes, some of that stuff. So still some challenges there. That's physically getting it off the ship and cleaned before you can take delivery, is that right? Yeah, yeah, just uh, various... Um, Incidents can occur, but it's just a, a resourcing issue. There's still plenty of um, activity on the wharves, and uh, you know, getting getting your machinery through um, isn't always guaranteed as uh, to be as timely as you'd like. That's Gary Northover speaking to you there. He is the executive director of the Tractory and Tractor Tractory Tractor and Machinery 
Association of Australia. We got there in the end, didn't we? We'll get to the weather shortly on the program too. A bit happening, certainly warnings-wise at the moment. Uh, We'll have a look at that shortly. Right now, though, let's go to the regional newsroom and find out what's making regional news headlines with Callum Marshall. Good afternoon, Callum. Good afternoon, Warwick. The Victorian Ombudsman has found the scheme designed to charge electric vehicle users has been overcharging some drivers. The zero emission scheme was introduced in 2021 in order to raise revenue towards road maintenance, similar to the way other drivers pay a fuel excise. EV drivers are required to upload an image of their vehicle's odometer annually to help calculate the fee. A parliamentary inquiry into last year's floods has heard councils struggled to respond quickly enough to flooding because the state's emergency authorities didn't have accurate and timely information. The Upper House Committee is looking into Victoria's preparedness and response to the floods. The flood level along the Avoca River at Charlton reached 7.8 metres last October. Bull Oak Shire's Mayor Alan Getley told the inquiry Vic Emergency and Vic Traffic apps didn't update quickly enough, meaning people drove into floodwater. He also said the State Control Centre didn't listen to local information that told authorities more water was around than Weather Bureau records indicated. Warrnambool City Council is seeking an extension to a federal government program which aims to ease worker shortages in southwest Victoria. The council is seeking a further five-year extension to the Designated Area Migration Agreement, which enables regional business to sponsor skilled and semi-skilled overseas workers for vacant roles. Business owners welcome the extension plan, but say housing shortages are the biggest problem in the area, calling for short-term accommodation such as Airbnb to go. The largest swap meet in the Southern Hemisphere has been cancelled for the fourth consecutive year after failing to lock in a new home in Western Victoria. Ballarat Swap Meet has most recently been held near the city's airport, but post-pandemic that site has been unavailable for the event due to the development of the area as part of the Ballarat West Employment Zone. Organisers say finding a venue for the much-loved event has proven a significant challenge for the committee, but remain hopeful they'll be able to find a solution for the event in 2025. That's the latest in news. For more, you can visit abc.net.au forward slash news. Thanks very much. Callum Marshall there with regional news headlines. Quick check of the texts, 0467842722. Just on tractor prices, after having a look at the sales, falling back to around 12,000 units this year compared to the 20,000-odd the two years prior. As we just learned, 12,000 is actually probably the more normal figure. It had been really running hot during the Leninia years. Damien says new tractor prices are ridiculously out of reach for the average farmer. Damien's thoughts, though, on the prices there and on artificial milk or factory milk or lab-grown milk, whatever you want to call it. Uh, this one says, we don't need it. Concentrate on things we need that we don't have. Uh, anonymous text there. Nigel says, it's not for mine. He goes, I was wondering... I'm wondering now when they're going to ban the milk enterprise in Australia. Uh, plenty more texts coming in. Jono, what's Jono saying on the borderline? I hope all the fake meat and milk consumers are prepared to put bushfires out. If we keep going down this track, we go, who's going to eat all the grass? There won't be any farmers left. The thoughts of Jono there on the text line. So keep them coming, 0467 If you want to send us a text, we're going to look at bees and a new varroa map shortly on the program. Plus... What do you think a cowgirl is in Australia? I'm going to get a definition for you after a gathering later on in the program. You need to stay tuned for that one. Right now, though, let's go to Michael Efron, who is definitely not a cowgirl, definitely a senior forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology, which is exactly what we need you for, Michael. How's the forecast looking? 
G'day, Warwick. Yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty warm uh, today. We've uh, got northerly winds after a run of cooler days, so uh, temperatures into the 20s across much of the state at the moment uh, into uh, the high 20s in the far northwest. Uh, we do have some sea breezes developing along the coast this afternoon, uh, but overall pretty settled for the rest of uh, today, apart from those northerlies starting to freshen in the south and southwest through the rest of this afternoon and evening. number of warnings out uh, as well. We do have uh, minor flood warning for the Goulburn and Latrobe rivers, but the warnings have been finalised for the Thompson, the Yarra and the Kiwa. Also a severe weather warning out for elevated parts of central and eastern Victoria for northerly winds uh, strengthening during the early part of Thursday and then they will ease uh, as we head into the afternoon. Also a warning for sheep graziers for the north central, northeast central, west and south Gippsland and east Gippsland forecast districts. So uh, during the early part of Thursday we will see a cold front entering the west of the state and then quite quickly moving uh, into the east. With that we'll see uh, some showers through western parts but as that front moves into the east we'll see that tend to areas of rain, uh, especially over Gippsland. So Overall, for southern and mountain districts, around 1 to 10 millimetres expected, but into eastern parts of the central district and into Gippsland, even southern parts of the northeast, we're looking at around 10 to 20 millimetres and potentially some higher falls about uh, the, the upper part of the Yarra catchment there, maybe the Bauble Plateau and elevated parts of Gippsland. So we are watching that closely in terms of possible impacts on... Um, those already very wet catchments uh, in those areas. For the north of the state, rainfall totals generally less than three or four millimetres. So behind that front, we do see uh, showers across the state with some isolated thunderstorm activity as well and pretty cold conditions developing. So we're likely to see snowfalls above about 1,300 metres by the end of Thursday. But prior to the change, still looking quite mild in the far north and east. 26 at the top at Bansdale, 23 at Mildura on Thursday. Elsewhere, uh, top temperatures around 18 or 19 degrees, but those tops uh, are quite early in the day. As we head into the afternoon, I think most areas will be back in the mid-teens. Uh, elsewhere at Ballarat, 16 the top, Hamilton 14. So definitely some colder air moving through. And then as we head into Friday and across the weekend and even into next Monday, pretty similar conditions with a west to southwesterly airstream delivering some showers in the south, across the north generally dry and partly cloudy. Temperatures each day are below average for this time of year, tops around uh, 15 to 18 degrees through the south, 19 to 22 across the north. Uh, I think... Potentially late Sunday into Monday, we may see a slightly stronger front moving through Bass Strait, and that could enhance the shower activity in the south. Uh, and then on uh, next Tuesday, we'll see the next high moving across the state and return to more settled weather with partly cloudy skies in the south, sunny conditions in the north, and most temperatures back in the mid-20s for northern parts, but high teens to low 20s in the south. And then next Wednesday... A little bit like today, we do see a return to northerly flow with warmer weather, but not necessarily a front moving through um, the day after. So uh, just one warm day, really, in, in the outlook. Otherwise, fairly cool conditions. Uh, 
that's really interesting to have a look at. So it's been a really interesting summer. I'm not spring. We're not at summer yet, are we, Michael? But spring in terms of the the temperatures are sort of jumping around a bit, and we've had one big rain event, but not much else. Exactly right. September was um, we saw record breaking dry and and also uh, record breaking temperatures across a lot of the state, and then uh, we've gone into October and had just the one big uh, rainfall event for the east. Um, pretty cool conditions, and it looks like that will continue for a little bit longer uh, until I think the uh, middle part of next week we get that northerly back, and there's no sign towards the end of next week of any um, significant fronts, so probably a run of warmer days there. And that severe weather warning, sort of how severe is the weather expected as part of that? Yeah, so I guess you'd say a, a relatively low-end um, event. We're looking at gusts getting to around 90 kilometres an hour, but about the high peaks, those alpine areas, we could see gusts of 100 kilometres an hour. So nothing like what we saw last week where we did have gusts uh, reaching 130 kilometres an hour. Uh, I've got a text here concerned about frost next Tuesday in northern Victoria. Obviously, that's, what, six days away. But but can you speak to that, Michael? What's expected there? Yeah, so it does look like a colder morning there. I think uh, places like Horsham could be down to about one or two degrees. Wangaratta, similar. Rutherglen, uh, about the same. So it would just be pockets of the north where we may get close to zero, but uh, certainly not. Uh, a widespread event if you look at somewhere like Swan Hill, four degrees, Mildura, six. So uh, not not that cold, um, not not looking at near zero conditions across the whole of northern Victoria. Brilliant. Uh, Michael, thanks very much for the update. Really appreciate it. Thanks, Warwick. Michael Efron, Senior Forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology. If you have a question, you know what to do. You can always send text through and we'll try and put that to the Weather Bureau Personalised Weather Reports. Uh, most days on offer here on the country are at 17 to 1. A couple of texts actually on the lab-grown milk idea. Kim says, fake milk? Are they kidding? Talk about fake news. What are they trying to do? Put our dairy farmers out of business and off the land. Uh, come on, reality check here. Keep it real. Real dairy from real cows for me, please, says Kim. Toby and Castlemaine, though, takes a different view. What lab-made milk is a great idea. Just think about the increased demand for dairy from India alone over the next 20 years. Unless we want to turn remaining forests over to dairy farming, lab milk is the only way to satisfy growing demand worldwide, says Toby in Castlemaine. Tony, really interesting point there. Um, India is already the biggest dairy market in the world. I think it's double the size of any other country in terms of dairy production, but so much is consumed there, obviously. It's not a major export nation, and, and the idea of, of growth in that country is certainly something to keep in mind, isn't it, in terms of a, a product as well? Although Australian dairy was probably a third bigger than it is right now. It's been through major falls in the last last uh, decade or so, and, and that's without going into to areas that are forests and so forth in Australia. So there's a whole lot to weigh up in terms of that, but really interesting point to make. Thank you very much for getting involved in the country out today. Let's talk bees right now, though, because a new interactive heat map is being published online by the New South Wales Department of Primary Industry to show the spread of varroa mite across the state. It's a change in management from the uh, eradication effort of the New South Wales DPI to now showing where the mite is. So the colours vary depending on the mite load from light 
pink for a low mite load in the area to dark purple for when there's lots. It's in addition to the orange management and green suppression emergency zones introduced with the transition to management across the outbreak. Deputy Incident Controller Shannon Mulholland explains to Kim Honan that the map will help beekeepers around Australia to keep an eye on the spread of the bee-killing pest. That was a, a commitment to continue to provide beekeepers with information about where Varroa is present across the state. So it's quite similar to the previous online searchable map that we used to have on the website, which would show the various zones around the state. Um, this heat map uh, reflects where we're still finding infested premises or where we have previously found infested premises, and it's mapped on a parish boundary basis. Um, so the little code on the side will basically give you an indication of this colour equals this many infested premises in that particular parish boundary and um, you can hover over the different sections to get a little bit more information about the number of infested premises in that zone. Okay, so it's interactive, yep. Yeah, yeah, it is interactive. You can search around, you can zoom right in, you can zoom right out. Um, and that's that's the first step in being able to provide that information to beekeepers um, as a as we move towards a national system for being able to map and track varroa spread across the country. Um, now, we're certainly hoping that that process will be very slow, but what this information provides to beekeepers is an understanding of the relative level of risk of varroa presence, and that allows them to make informed decisions for their business operations. And are there any new detections that you can see on the map? Uh, no, I don't believe there's been any new detections within the last few days um, represented on the map. Uh, we've we've had a lot of teams focusing on completing our euthanasia activities for the beekeepers who still wish to complete euthanasia on their hives. Um, so that's taken a little bit of our focus around from surveillance activities, although we do still have teams active in surveillance. And beekeepers now um, are actually contacting us with their results and any suspect detections of varroa, we, we can follow that up with them, um, understand what testing that they have done, what they may have found, and then provide guidance to them on the next steps. So how many infested premises are there now? How many new detections have there been in the last few weeks? Um, in terms of the total number of infested premises, uh, we're sitting at 293 across the state. Okay, and where have the new ones been? Um, predominantly within uh, that Kempsey zone and uh, the bottom parts of the central coast, just where it's tipping into the Sydney basin. So how many beekeepers have actually elected for voluntary euthanasia? Um, the number varies between different regions. We've certainly seen uh, a lot of uptake uh, in the southern Sunraysia and Riverina sectors. Uh, and beekeepers are making these decisions based on a whole range of, of personal and business circumstances related to their operations. And so our teams are still working very hard to try and complete that euthanasia work as rapidly as they can and then help the beekeepers um, work through that ORC process as well. So is there still quite a, a few to go then? There's still a few to go. Uh, we have completed the work in the Sunraysia, which is good. That's allowing us to consolidate our teams in the Riverina sectors um, around Uroli and Nerecon and we're, we're sending more and more teams down there as, as quickly as we possibly can because um, we really want to have that work finished as quickly as we can. We know that beekeepers really want to have that work finished as quickly as we can as well and so we've been scaling up the resources there for a number of weeks now just trying to get through that work. When varroa mite does spread interstate will it then become a, a national map? Will you need other states on board for that? Yeah, it will. And this is um, a lot of what we're unpacking at the moment in terms of drafting the new response plan, which will see out the remainder of that transition to management process over the next 12 months. Um, there's quite a bit of work that we can still do within the response program to support beekeepers adjust to living with Varroa. 
But anything that we uh, work on moving forward, it has to be addressed at that national level. And we have to make sure that the mechanisms that we're adopting are something that can be self-perpetuating beyond when the response actually shuts down. So that's why we're working very closely with industry. We're working very closely with our interstate uh, jurisdiction colleagues. We want to be able to set up systems and processes that industry can be self-sustaining with moving forward as they adapt to living with this pest. And that way we have sustainability in that whole system. And so how soon will we see a new response plan? Is that something that uh, the CCEP and National Management Group are yet to decide on? Uh, Yeah, that's correct. It's being drafted right now um, and we have the next round of meetings scheduled for early November to review the plan and to get um, first that technical endorsement and an agreement on what the strategy is moving forward. That is the new Varroa mite heat map and Shannon Mulholland was telling you about that Deputy Incident Controller for the Varroa mite response with the New South Wales Department of Primary Industries speaking there with Kim Honan. Hey, just a, a quick one on the country air before we move to markets. Uh, the country air understands that the Victorian Farmers Federation has been writing to United Dairy Farmers of Victoria members to advise them that Uh, vote or elections are going to come up to keep the dairy group, the United Dairy Farmers of Victoria organisation, moving 10 of the 12 members of the UDV Policy Council have resigned and formed a renegade dairy organisation called Dairy Farmers Victoria. Well, a message has now gone out to UDV members to say that uh, the door will be open for nominations soon for people to put their hand up to join the UDV Policy Council. And that process is going to happen very shortly. So we'll keep you updated on that as it happens. Now, a bit of a definition question for you. In Australia, what do you or who do you define as a cowgirl? And do you think there are many of them here? Well, there's at least 700 because 700 or more camped out at the third annual Cowgirls Gathering to have fun and learn in a supportive environment and focus on their health and well-being. As Jennifer Nichols reports, it was a chance to camp out, connect and collaborate. It's one weekend every year that gets hundreds of rural women cracking, blocking out their calendars and camping out in Kilkeven, an hour and a half's drive northwest of the Sunshine Coast, for an equestrian event unlike any other. <laughs> Amanda Loy founded the event three years ago and it's been growing organically with more than 700 women taking part this year. It's just a beautiful thing to see them taking some time out for themselves and filling up their own cup. So that's something that I get a lot of reward out of. How important is mental health and self-care as part of this? Yeah, I think it's something we don't talk about enough. I think it's something that women don't often do naturally as carers and caregivers. So I think it's incredibly important for them to take some time out and have a bit of, you know, a bit of them time. And there's a common theme through the whole entire weekend. Obviously the horse connects us, but it's really about women supporting women. And that's just phenomenal that we can just provide that over three days. Australian Stockman's Challenge Association champion rider Bridie Hughes drove in her big rig from Biggenden. Yeah, we've been excited for this for weeks uh, leading up to this. We've had quite a hectic year uh, in the challenge industry. Um, we did about 11 or 12 shows. So to come to our girls gathering and just take a step back and enjoy the environment and the friendly faces, we've been really excited to finally get here. The gathering welcomes riders from all and any disciplines, including dressage, 
polo cross, camp drafting, stockman's challenge, cutting and trail riding. But not everyone came with a horse or even owned one. As well as equine competitions and clinics, there were ice baths and classes in breath work, whip cracking, roping, drawing, leather work and jewellery making. So I think it's about supporting each other and keeping it really safe, encouraging each other. Edwina Pilch from Brookfield in Brisbane says it's a chance to focus on self-care. Women are the backbone of most families. They're the backbone of um, the businesses. They're the backbone of their husbands, their partners, their children. So it's important that we do look after ourselves um, because I think when a woman goes down, that everything comes down. It was the first cowgirls gathering for Anne Mayerhofer, who left uplifted by the experience. I do struggle with depression and only a few months ago I wasn't in a good place but I realise just how light I'm feeling and happy now that I need to do this more often and this being with friends, being with horses, I love being outside camping. Emily Spur travelled from Canungra taking her stallion bandit off her family's farm for the first time. It's just amazing to have such a huge gathering of so many like-minded people obviously and um, yeah all coming here to join together and learn more about horsemanship and about our horses and what they can teach us. From big rigs to tiny tents and swags, what the women camped in was fascinating in itself. Hey, this is uh, what we call glamping horse-like style. <laughs> Trish Richardson left her horse at home to make room for a camp bed and hanging space for her friend's clothes. Uh, I even bought the cow rug just for an added touch. <laughs> Didn't have to bring horses this weekend, so it was really easy to keep clean. <laughs> and so you've got the trusty camp bed? Yep, camp bed, swag on top. Very luxurious now, not on the ground anymore. I've upgraded to a stretcher. <laughs> Fiona Patterson's tent setup was classy. Is that linen I spy on that bed? Of course it's linen. Jen, what else would it be? A girl has to get a good night's sleep. <laughs> I've got everything I need here. Headlamp for night time, drink of water, keep hydrated, and um, yeah, just set up for an excellent weekend with the girls. But exactly what is an Aussie cowgirl? We put the question out to the crowd. Uh, I would say that a cowgirl is someone who's tough, resilient, brave, outgoing. So I'd like to say that it is someone who horse rides. Determination, drive, passion, because you wouldn't be in horses and you wouldn't do the work that you do on the, the stations and stuff without passion for what you're doing. Guts. Um, guts and determination and grit. It's about looking after others and being gutsy in the community. I think uh, connected to nature and animals, and I think the intuition that women have as a cowboy, you connect to the horses. Mostly everything. Look after your ponies and give your ponies a lot of love and give your pony a lot of treats. Yeah! There you go, that story from Jennifer Nichols, who had a lot of fun, by the sounds of it, with the horses too at, cow- at the Cowgirls Gathering in Queensland, the third annual one of its type. Let's go to the markets now. Couple to get through today. We'll start with the sheep and lamb market reports and we'll go to Hamilton first. Take it away, Chris Agnew. Thanks, Warwick. Agent shouted 2,150 lambs as well as 800 sheep this week. The quality was not as good and or as even as last week's offering. 
Despite the quality drop, the market showed some resilience for the better end, being firm on last week's sale with all other lambs to the trade, $10 per head softer. The very light lambs showed a cheaper trend by $20 per head. The very good trade lambs this week made between 360 and 460 cents a kilo. Top lambs making to $130. Some well finished merino lambs made to $87. Sheep remained firm to five cheaper. Light 12 to 16 kg lambs, 12 to $48. 18 to 22 kgs, 71 to 100. With the 22 to 26s making between 90 and 125. Heavy crossbred use to $30, Merino used to $24, with Weathers to $45. At Hamilton, this is Chris Agnew reporting for MLA. Let's see if it was a similar theme at Horsham. Graham Palmer's there, Graham. Good afternoon, everyone. Big lift in lamb numbers to 11,100, including 8,500 young lambs and 2,200 sheep were yarded. Quality was mostly good with the usual buying group and attendance and operating in a generally firm market on the lambs. Medium and heavy trade weight young lamb sold from 115 to 138. Heavyweight sold from 150 to 169. The old lamb sold from 72 to 156. Merino lambs mostly sold from 61 to 115. Restockers paid from 23 to 52. The sheep quality was good with merino sheep selling similar last week. The crossbreeds are easier by 5 to $10 a head. Merino used made to 55, crossbred used to 40. Light trade weight lamb sold from 34 to 95 to average 480. Medium trade weight sold from 115 to 132 to average 520. Export weight sold from 134 to 157, they've averaged 505. Extra heavy weight sold from 150 to 169 to average 480. Medium weight sheep sold from 13 to 30 to average 100 cents. Hoggets to 62. Rams made to one dollar. Graham Pyman at Horsham from LA. Thanks very much for that, Graham. Let's go to the cattle markets. Just the one today. It's Brendan Fletcher at Lee and Gatha. G'day, Brendan. G'day, Warwick. Numbers were firm at 960, with most of the usual buyers operating more selectively in a cheaper market. Quality declined with more secondary loss throughout. A handful of heifers to the trade held firm, while secondary young cattle lost up to 60 cents. Bullocks eased 25, manufacturing steers lost mostly 25 cents and more in places. Heavy cows sold firm to 5 cents easier, medium weights eased 5 to 15, and heavy bulls slipped 30. Heifers to the trade sold from 220 to 230 after a top of 284. Grown steers and bullocks 214 to 258. Heavy Frisian steers 138 to 176. Crossbreds 168 to 226. Most light and medium weight cows 80 to 140. Heavyweights 126 to 185. Heavy bulls 160 to 235. This is Brendan Fletcher reporting for MLA. Thanks very much for that, Brendan. That's about all the time we have for you on the country. Uh, Sally from the Mallee, I'll read your text, though. We just heard from the New South Wales government about their interactive Varroa map. Sally says they've had years to prepare for this, and the department wants us to congratulate them for making an interactive website. Big deal. Do better. Thank you very much for that, Sally, from the Mallee. That's it for the Country Hour today. We will be back with you at the same time tomorrow. I think we'll have the Roads Minister on tomorrow's program. Hope you can join us then. It's one o'clock. It's one o'clock.